From NPR and WBUR Boston, I'm Meghna Chakrabarty, and this is On Point. Hello, Friday. We are in that phase of a presidential election where if you live in just a handful of states, you are the center of the American political universe. The Trump and Biden campaigns might have even crisscrossed each other in the sky this week as they stumped back and forth between states like North Carolina and Pennsylvania, culminating last night in Nashville, Tennessee, for the final debate of the 2020 presidential race. We're opening up our country. We've learned and studied and understand the disease, which we didn't at the beginning. You folks home will have an empty chair at the kitchen table this morning. That man or wife going to bed tonight and reaching over to try to touch their out of habit where their wife or husband was is gone. Learning to live with it. Come on. We're dying with it. Well, in Tennessee, more than 2,000 people tested positive with COVID-19 yesterday. They're posting a high 10% positivity rate in Tennessee. Nationwide, more than 75,000 people tested positive yesterday. That is a 32% increase from the average number of COVID cases in the U.S. two weeks ago. So what do the Biden and Trump campaigns schedules, strategy and spending across all of this week tell us about where they think this race is and where this country is headed. Well, Jack Beatty, On Point News Analyst, is here to help us answer that. Hello, Jack. Hello, Megna. And Lisa Lehrer, she covers campaigns, elections and political power at The New York Times. Hello, Lisa. Hi, thanks for having me. Okay, so Jack and Lisa, let me just get your first Quick takes, if I could, about uh, last night's debate in Nashville. Jack, we didn't actually hear the mute button get used a lot, but the uh, the tone. I don't don't want to say tone. The uh, the what what viewers got out of the debate was probably different, definitely than the first one. Yes, and 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 Lisa in her column this morning, I think, uh, is probably right in saying that if you score it, it was a draw in that. Mr. Trump uh, was not as uh, bearish as he was in the first debate, and that was a disaster for him. Uh, But a a tie is not what he needed. He needed something that would uh, break, uh, allow him to break out of what has been the most stable presidential contest in a long time with a steady Biden lead. uh, And he didn't do that last night. There was nothing that could qualify as a, you know, something that would change the race. So I don't know that it affects the dynamics of the race at all. Yeah. So Lisa, um, you know, the, as you're right to point out, like if you score it, so let's not score it actually, because I, I think the, de- the bar for the debate or bar for victory, quote unquote victory for the debate was so low for both candidates. Like, like all President Trump had to do was not you know, spontaneously combust on stage. And all Joe Biden had to do was essentially just stay awake and not trip over himself. That's a pretty low bar for people who want to lead this country. So uh, folks in either camp are going to say their guy won. But what I'm curious to hear from you is in terms of the voters that they needed to reach, did President Trump and did former Vice President Joe Biden reach those voters last night? Well, I have to say, I actually disagree a little bit. I don't think the bar was that low uh, for President Trump. I think there were a lot of ways he could have done very badly in this debate. And so I guess in that way, the basic price of entry was just restraining himself a little bit and debating in sort of a typical normal fashion and looking a little bit like, well, you know, a traditional president. But in order to change the dynamics of this race, a race that 
by at least what we can tell from polling and early voting and these other metrics, he is currently losing and has been losing for weeks, if not months. He had to do more than that. And that's what didn't happen last night. Now, um, could this convince some voters on the fence to, uh, you know, support the president? Sure, I suppose it could possibly do that. It could give some voters who maybe were leaning towards the president that extra, uh, you know, sense of reassurance that they need to go in and cast their ballot for him. But right now, at least from what we can tell in early voting, the president needs a really big wave of Republican voters to come out on election day. So this isn't about, you know, necessarily swaying a couple voters here or there. I think the president needed to change the dynamics of this race in a pretty significant way. And it's just it does not feel at all that um, he did that last night. Hmm. So we're going to talk a lot about um, how the candidates and the campaigns over the course of the week have been talking about the economy and about the pandemic. But I want to focus in for a moment on one of the, I think, the more revealing part parts of last night's debate, because we did actually hear substantive policy differences, which we did not hear at all in the first debate uh, between Trump and Biden. Uh, so, he, for example, he, on immigration, Kristen Welker of ABC and props to her, she, uh, sorry, NBC, she did a great job last night. She asked President Trump about reports that his administration cannot locate parents of more than 500 children who were separated from their families at the U.S. border. And President Trump, here's how he answered. There was a picture of these horrible cages, and they said, look at these cages. President Trump built them. And then it was determined they were built in 2014. That was him. Do you have a plan to reunite the kids? Yes, we're working on it very, we're, we're trying very hard. So President Trump there referring to the, the quote-unquote cages, which were constructed during the Obama administration. They built those facilities to hold migrants who were crossing the border without documentation. The family separation policy, though, however, was exclusively put into place by the Trump administration when they criminalized those border crossings and therefore separated parents from their children. Now, here is how Vice President Biden, former Vice President Biden, reacted. Parents were ripped, their kids were ripped from their arms and separated. And now they cannot find over 500 sets of those parents and those kids are alone. Nowhere to go. Nowhere to go. It's criminal. It's criminal. Jack, your thoughts about that? It's criminal uh, what happened. And uh, the president's comment that we're doing all we can or we're helping find them. According to the ACLU, there was an interview on the PBS NewsHour with one of their principals the other day. The, The administration is doing nothing to help find these uh, uh, parents. The ACLU and lawyers groups are doing the searching. They're going door to door in Guatemala and other places, uh, and they're getting zero help from the administration. So uh, that that was just a, uh, a lie. Mm. Well, Lisa, of course, immigration was one of those things that truly excited the president's base in 2016. Is the way he talked about it last night going to have the same effect this time around? Well, look, this is an issue that's been really wrenching for the conscience of the nation. And I think those kids are deeply uh, sympathetic figures. It's hard to not feel compassion for small children ripped from their parents. So, you know, it was another example of the president failing to show a sense of empathy, something that's always been a bit of a weakness for him, but I think has become more pronounced as the country deals with this um, 
deadly pandemic, and also his his inability to really present an affirmative vision for what he would do going forward. I mean, when asked about his plan to fix the situation, he sort of said, well, there's a plan, there's a plan, and brushed past any details that um, may or may not exist there. Uh, the other interesting part of that exchange that I just want to quickly point out was that when uh, Joe Biden was pressed on the Obama administration immigration policy, which included uh, some very high levels of deportation. He did something that we just really haven't seen from him throughout this entire campaign, including the very long primary period, which is that he drew a little tiny sliver of light between mm. himself and former President Obama. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was I thought that was a really interesting and notable moment. He said uh, basically that during the Obama administration, he was the vice president, not the president, implying that he would have maybe taken a different policy on immigration. And and I think what that really reflects is not some great rift between Obama and Biden, but just where the Democratic, how far the Democratic Party has moved on the issue of immigration, Um, you know, as their coalition has become just more and more diverse every passing election cycle. Yeah, good point, because he talked about how uh, they couldn't get in comprehensive immigration reform done in the Obama administration. Of course, that was one of the uh, points at which, or, or over multiple times last night, Trump really pounced on 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 Biden with the "you couldn't get anything done over forty seven years" line. But let's let's focus focus now on the biggest the big issue, which uh, Kristen Welker opened with last night, and that of course is the pandemic. And here's a moment where President Trump talked about a couple of key states in this election. Um, in one of his responses to managing the COVID-19 pandemic. You look at Pennsylvania, North Carolina, Democrats, Democrats all, they're shut down so tight and they're dying. They're dying. And he supports all these people. All he talks about is shutdowns. And here's how former Vice President Biden responded. What I would say is I'm going to shut down the virus, not the country. It's his ineptitude that caused the, virus, caused the country to have to shut down in large part. Why businesses have gone under, why schools are closed, why so many people have lost their living, and why they're concerned. Those other concerns are real. That's why he should have been, instead of in a sand trap in his golf course, he should have been negotiating with Nancy Pelosi and the rest of the Democrats and Republicans about what to do about the acts they were passing for billions of dollars to make sure people had the capacity. But you to- haven't ruled out more shutdowns. Well, no, I'm not shutting down the name, but there are, look, you need standards. The standard is if you have a reproduction rate in a community that's above a certain level, everybody says, slow up. Jack, what did you hear in terms of how, uh, let's start with Biden, how he responded to the um, issue of what will he do to manage the pandemic? Well, it seems to me he was cogent and sensible, and he didn't. He, he, he set down what is a, cr- a criterion for opening up and what, which criterion was, after all, propounded by the president's own, uh, you know, uh, advisory council on the pandemic. But to me, the, the crystallizing comment, and it was sort of, uh, you know, summarized in what the president was charging, it, but he offered a, 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 an even more succinct uh, version of it this week at a rally. He said of Joe Biden, he'll listen to the scientists. He's, you know, there is no context that can redeem that statement from its lethal ignorance. Jack Beatty and Lisa Lehrer stand by. We are talking about what the campaign's 
spending strategy and schedules are telling us about where they see this election is. When we come back, we'll talk a lot more about health care and the pandemic. So hang in with us. This is On Point. Support for the On Point podcast comes from Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Ditch the busy work and use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com onpoint. That's Indeed.com onpoint. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Support for On Point comes from BetterHelp. If you had an extra hour in the day, how would you use it? BetterHelp Online Therapy can help you figure out what's most important to you so you can prioritize it. Learn to make time for what makes you happy. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist. And switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Visit BetterHelp.com OnPoint today to get 10% off your first month. This is On Point. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. Welcome to Friday, everyone. You made it. We are talking this week about how the campaigns, what they spent, where they went, and what their strategies are, what that tells us about where the Trump and Biden campaigns think this election is now with just a week and a half to go until the end of voting, and what that means their visions for the country are as they move forward. I'm joined today by Lisa Lehrer. She's a reporter at the New York Times covering campaigns, elections, and political power. She writes the On Politics with Lisa Lehrer newsletter. Jack Beatty is with us as well. He's On Point News Analyst. And now I want to bring into the conversation Julie Rovner. She's chief Washington correspondent for Kaiser Health News and host of Kaiser's What the Health podcast. Julie, welcome to On Point. Thank you for having me. So, Obviously, because of the pandemic, but also because healthcare is such a profound issue in America. We actually heard Joe Biden in the debate in Nashville last night say, don't call it Obamacare, call what he wants to do Biden care. What'd you think of that? Um, I think it's actually pretty pretty true. He wants to expand the Affordable Care Act in a pretty major way. Um, things that the Obama administration would have liked to have gotten done in 2010 when the, the law passed, but couldn't get through the Senate, even with 60 Democratic votes. There were three or four moderates who just weren't buying what the liberals were selling. Um, perhaps now, with uh, such a push for Medicare for all, and Biden very carefully saying he is not for Medicare for all, but something more what looks moderate today, like a public option, a government plan that people could buy into if they wanted to, uh, which seemed way too much like socialized medicine in 2010, uh, might might be more doable, although it, of course, depends on what the Senate looks like and what the House looks like. Mm. And how do you how do you uh, uh, analyze how the president, how tra- President Trump talked about his view for health care, because he definitely went to great lengths to discuss his distaste for the ACA uh, and his hopes that um, it's taken down in the courts. But did you hear him articulate any specific plan beyond the promise that he has a plan for American health care? 
No, and this has been really infuriating for health policy reporters like me. Um, if there is a plan, they have not shown it to us. We've also asked, is there a contingency plan if the court does what you're asking them to do and strikes down the entire Affordable Care Act? And they say, uh, yeah, we have a plan, but no, we're not going to tell you what it is. And of course, not just President Trump, but Republicans in these some of these key Senate races keep saying, oh, we will protect people with pre-existing conditions, but they have not shown how they would do that either. So they're they're trying to sort of build on, you know, the popular pieces of the Affordable Care Act um, while in in fact going trying to get the entire thing thrown out. Right. So so Julie, I know that you're a you're a health policy reporter and not a campaign reporter, but I'm gonna ask you to, to to stretch a little into the the sort of campaign reporting mindset. Because as I talked as I talked with Jack and Lisa a little earlier, uh, in terms of the debate last night, in these moments where we heard substantive differences um, uh, it, between the two candidates. Do you think, for example, in the president's case, did he did he reach the voters that he needed to reach on the issue of of health care? It's it's hard to know. I mean, I think he's definitely trying to reassure his base that the people that that the the pieces of the Affordable Care Act, the pieces of health care that they like, will remain even if the law goes, which is. Definitely, you know, yet to be seen. Um, I think one of the things the president did that jumped out at me was he really did make this all very political, particularly on the coronavirus. He was saying mm-hmm. he doesn't want to give money to Democratic states. That's I've been doing this for 35 years. I have never seen anyone say that, you know, they don't want to give give out money because it will go to members of the other party. There are certainly lots of formula fights about who should get how much. But the idea that he doesn't want to give money to help with COVID-19 because he doesn't uh, he, he doesn't believe that it should go to Democrats is a step beyond what I've seen before. Lisa, you want to jump in here? Uh, yeah, I mean, I think the the lack of uh, ability for Republicans to articulate a health care plan uh is something that uh, hurt them significantly in the midterm elections in 2018. And I I think could continue to be a drag uh, on President Trump and on those Republicans running in Senate races this time around, for sure. Jack, what are your thoughts? Yes. And as uh, as Vice President Biden said, of all times to be talking about, you know, striking down health care for millions of people in the middle of a pandemic. I mean, it just it just uh, emphasizes the uh, the absurdity, really, of the Trump position. Where, yes. I, in fact, he said in an interview with Leslie Stahl, oh, I want the court to strike it down with nothing to replace it, meaning millions of people immediately or thereabouts would lose coverage in a pandemic when they need it most. It, 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 it's inhumane. Mm. Well, since you did mention, Jack, um, Leslie Stahl here, the president released a White House recording of his interview with uh, CBS's Leslie Stahl. The interview um, happened a little earlier. The White House released its recording on Thursday. The interview is actually set to air on CBS on Sunday. Uh President Trump leaked footage that was meant for archival purposes. That was the agreement between CVS and the White House. But they leaked the footage because the president did not like Stahl's questions. So let's listen to a moment from uh, the tape. They'll be protected, Leslie. I mean, the people with pre-existing conditions are going to be protected as they are now. In any plan we do, they will be protected. Leslie... People with pre-existing conditions will be always 
protect always. But if if the Supreme Court ends this Obamacare, um, well, we're not to see what happens. It's got a ways to go. I mean, we'll see what happens. I think I think it'll end. Uh, I think I I hope that they end. It'll be so good if they, if end, they end because, end because end. we will come up with a plan we which will. will be a. Yeah, we will. But you said it would already. We have large sections of it already done. That's from the from the recording the White House made of the president's interview with CBS's Leslie Stahl. And again, CBS will air, air uh, its contextualized interview on Sunday. Julie, re- respond to that to that back and forth. What did you hear in there? Well, uh, the, Leslie Stahl is asking exactly what health reporters have been asking for the last four years um, as the, the Republicans have tried to come up with a plan to replace the Affordable Care Act, and they have not been able to. And partly it's because, you know, we focus on how the Democrats disagree over how to move forward on health care. The Republicans disagree, too. Um, but the fact is the president cannot protect pre-existing conditions uh, on his own. It would take an act of Congress. Congress does not agree. They, Congress has not even been able to agree on how to fix some of the really small things in the Affordable Care Act. There were a couple of, uh, of, of sort of minor glitches, and they came really close to getting a bipartisan bill to fix it, and it fell apart over abortion language. Mm. So, Julie, check me on, on one thing, because, of course, we're focusing on, on Biden and Trump right now. But regarding the ACA and any plans to replace it, there haven't been any forthcoming plans from the Republican Party as a whole over the past several years? Or did I miss one along the way? No, even in 2017, um, when the House passed a bill, and remember Trump had a big sort of uh, celebration party in the Rose Garden, um, it couldn't get through the Senate. And in fact, the the, the rather famous thumbs down moment from John McCain uh, was, was basically something to just kick the can down the road. What he was voting no on was a plan to come up with a plan. So Republicans really have never had an adequate replacement plan for the Affordable Care Act. They've simply not been able to agree on what that should look like. Mm. And do you think because we're in the middle of this pandemic um, and it's only further brought the issue of health care into sharper relief, has that translated into something that's, that, that the campaigns are talking about centrally, about uh, American health care? Or is it sort of are you hearing the discussion be more broadly about pandemic management? I'm just wondering, like, sort of how resonant is this? You know, um, as in the yeah. election cycle. Go ahead. At the beginning of the pandemic, I was wondering if it would sort of push the public into, you know, the, this consideration of a does it really make sense for, you know, 30 million people not to have health insurance during a pandemic? Um, but really, I think because of the Supreme Court case, it's sort of devolved into two separate issues. And definitely how the administration has or hasn't dealt with COVID is the top issue for many, many voters. Um the reason the Affordable Care Act is uh, an issue this time around is because of this case going before the Supreme Court on November 10th, the week after the, the election. And for now, at least, they seem fairly separate. Mm. Lisa, do you want to talk about how like how the, um, the campaigns are discussing this um, on the stump? Well, look, Joe Biden's campaign is very eager to discuss this. The Democratic playbook in 2018 was to hammer home the message that Republicans would remove the popular provisions of the health care law, like covering people with pre-existing conditions, like allowing uh, children to stay on their parents' plan until they're 25. And that was a playbook that worked uh, pretty well for the Democratic Party. They won back, of course, control of the House. 
They won a lot of races um, in these swing suburban districts that are, were really pivotal then for control of the House and are really pivotal now for control of the White House. So I, I think a lot of Democrats, uh, including Joe Biden's campaign, are eager to discuss this issue. And in some of the down ballot races, they're more eager to discuss this than uh, President Trump and his conduct in a lot of ways, because that's what worked for them uh, two years ago. Mm. Jack, jump in here. Your thoughts? It's an it's an impossible issue for the president and his party. Uh, four years, they haven't done it. And he keeps making promises. Uh, in an interview, I believe in August, with Chris Wallace, he said, oh, in two weeks, I'm coming up with a bill that's going to, you know, have give everything on, on health care. We're going to have this solved. I'm, I'll have the bill. And uh, it, 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 that was in August. The bill hasn't appeared. There's no evidence of it. The president just uh, just maunders, just really fills the air with words without any connection to any uh, legislative or political reality. Mm. So let's talk uh, a, a bit about how last night in the debate we had, um, you know, the confluence of issues, COVID, healthcare, uh, and and the economy. Jack, is that your dog? No. 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 Okay. Whoever's dog that is, welcome to On Point. But <laughs> is that Julie, is that your dog? Yes, okay. I think I'm getting a package delivered. Uh, th- that, that, that's okay. You know what? It, look, we are all working under extraordinary circumstances in 2020. Uh, but let's, I was talking about the confluence between COVID, healthcare, and the economy. And last night in the debate in Nashville, former Vice President Biden talked about his plan to bail out small businesses and raise the minimum wage. President Trump responded saying he did not think the Biden plan would work. We have to help our small businesses. How are you helping your small businesses when you're forcing wages? What's going to happen and what's been proven to happen is when you do that, these small businesses fire many of their employees. Not true. And Biden, you heard him say not true there. He continued on and doubled down, tying his economic proposals to the state of the nation due to the pandemic. Quick no response, Vice President Biden. Two jobs, one job, be below poverty. People are making six, seven, eight bucks an hour. These first responders, we all clap for as they come down the street because they've allowed us to make it. What's happening? They deserve a minimum wage of $15. Anything below that puts you below the poverty level. And there is no evidence that when you raise the minimum wage, businesses go out of business. That is simply not true. Jack, did you want to respond to that? Because the economy, of course, is central to um, uh, uh, what's on voters' minds now. Yeah. I, I, on the issue of the minimum wage, it's 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 not all that clear, really, is it, whether it costs jobs or not? And at least intuitively, I think the president had a point there. Is this the time to raise the minimum wage with small businesses hurting? By, uh, uh, Biden's repost was, well, we'll aid the businesses. I, I, I didn't think I don't know that that made all that much sense. But to the economy generally, you know, you look for an objective source who who's right on the economy. Well, according to Moody's analytics, if the Democrats capture the Senate and Biden wins the presidency, Biden's spending and tax plans will produce seven 
8.4 million more jobs and a faster recovery than what a Trump second term would deliver. Uh, the president talks about getting back to normality. According to Moody's analytics, normality, under defined as full employment, would return two years earlier under Biden than under Trump. So the numbers say, or at least the this forecasting firm says, uh, uh, in terms of jobs, Biden will produce Biden plan produces millions more jobs than what uh, the the president uh, is proposing. Hmm. You know, and Lisa, amongst in the midst of all this, we do not have agreement uh, between the president, between his fellow Republicans on Capitol Hill and definitely with Democrats over the passage of another covid relief bill. Uh, no, we definitely do not. And uh, it does not seem like any bill will be coming before the election, which really is an extraordinary uh, thing, given how much the country is suffering. But, you know, I wonder some the economy has long been the last sort of remaining bright spot for the president that uh, voters said that they trusted him on the economy more than Joe Biden. And in recent weeks, we've really seen that shift. And we had a poll last week, I believe, I have to admit the days are all sort of blurring together at this point, <laughs> that showed that um, that the president had lost his advantage of that that on that issue. And he now trailed uh, trails behind Joe Biden on the economy, along with basically every other major issue in American life, most centrally, the virus. So that's a big problem for him. And sometimes I wonder um, if the fundamental issue here with the president is that his version of events, what he is selling the public, uh, the uh, the coronavirus is getting better, that things are improving, that the economy is going to bounce back bigger than ever. It just deeply conflicts with what voters believe and their lived reality. When the president talks about the economy, he's largely talking about the stock market. Mm-hmm. Only about half of the country even has any investments in the stock market. And for those who don't, you know, we see on all the data that they're suffering quite a lot in terms of jobs, in terms of, you know, rates of people going hungry, in terms of people falling into poverty. This has been a very difficult period for the country economically. And it does not seem that the president's, uh, president's plans reflect that. And of course, as the incumbent, you know, generally they take the blame for what happens on their watch. Yeah. Julie, I have you for about another 40 seconds before we have to take another break here. So in the in the next week and a half, through your health policy uh, reporter's eyes here, what are you going to be looking for in terms of what the campaigns are talking about um, uh, before voting ends on November 3rd? Well, how much they are really leaning on this, you know, protecting pre-existing condition. This is President Trump and Republicans in some of these swing Senate seats and to some extent some of the House seats um, because they see that the Democrats are using this uh, in some somewhat the same way they used it in 2018. And the Democrats did really well using health care in 2018. Julie Rovner, she's chief Washington correspondent for Kaiser Health News and host of Kaiser's What the Health podcast. Julie, it's always great to have you. Thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you, Megna. And Jack Beatty and Lisa Lehrer stand by. We are talking about what the campaigns and where they've spent their money, where, where their schedules have taken them, what their strategies are, what that tells us about what you can expect in the last week and a half before November Third, and what the visions for that President Trump and former Vice President Biden have for the future of this country. We'll talk more when we come back. This is On Point.
The world's clean energy future relies on ancient elements still in the ground. Without mining, there will not be a clean energy transition. But pulling them out of the ground comes at an environmental and human cost. Mining is intrusive, but the results are the building blocks for products that we use every single day. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. Join me for Elements of Energy, Mining for a Green Future. Five consecutive episodes right here. So make sure you're following this podcast. This is On Point. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. It's Friday, and we're joined today by Lisa Lehrer, reporter for The New York Times. She covers campaigns, elections, and political power. Jack Beatty's also with us. He's On Point news analyst. And I want to play another moment from last night's presidential debate in Nashville, because unprompted, President Donald Trump brought up the fundraising gap between his campaign and Biden's campaign. You have raised a lot of money, tremendous amounts of money. And every time you raise money, deals are made, Joe. I could raise so much more money as president and as somebody that knows most of those people. I could call the heads of Wall Street, the heads of every company in America. I would blow away every record, but I don't want to do that because it puts me in a bad position. I could blow away your records that like you wouldn't believe we don't need money. We have plenty of money. Lisa, why do you think the president did that? Well, look, I mean, the reality is that the president has far less money than he anticipated for the final stretch of the presidential election. And that's really made forced his aides to make, uh, you know, some difficult, difficult choices. Um, So I think some of it is some deflection that he knows he's leading the losing the money race to Joe Biden. He's trying to um, make that look less of a sign uh, that there's Democratic enthusiasm for his for this election and for defeating him and more, um, you know, to try to get it to play into his argument that he's not a conventional politician, that Joe Biden is politics as usual. And the president, even though he's the uh, leader of the free world now, is still a political outsider. Is he still relying more on the magnetism of his rallies than where um, that that fundraising could help him, where it could help him spend money? Well, he's definitely in a financial pinch. There's no question about that. It's a little hard uh, to suss out how this is all going to play out because this has been such an extraordinary year. And of course, his campaign, while they have less to spend on advertising, um, and it is sort of shocking given how many years they spent sort of his aides spent bragging about how good they were at fundraising, that they end up in this position. But, you know, the Republicans were organizing throughout the pandemic. They were on the ground, knocking on doors, organizing voters, whereas Democrats really haven't done that. And only now in the final weeks have sort of waded back into doing more of that kind of work. So we just haven't really seen um, this kind of a campaign before. And of course, it is important also to remember that money doesn't always equal victory. He was uh, outraised by Hillary Clinton four years ago and, of course, won the race. So, uh, you know, it's hard to know how this is all going to play out, but it's definitely sort of a, a surprising turn of events for a campaign that that spent so much time raising money and spent so much time bragging about how much money they were raising. Mm. I just have to oh. ask, Jack, is that your pup? No. no, no, that one's That's mine. yours, Lisa. Sorry, okay. guys. No, it's, yeah. it's okay. It's quite all right. Look, look, the, look, the canines of America are also like, we need to just get this, get through this. Yeah. 
I, I mean, I sort of figure dogs barking are better than screaming children, right? Well, all all of it is sort of, I mean, like your dog is communicating where we all are emotionally right now. Okay, so so let's talk a little bit about where the campaigns are. Like physically are spent are are focusing their efforts in these in these last couple of weeks here because the president touched down this week in Nevada, Arizona, Pennsylvania, North Carolina. Joe Biden was in North Carolina, also Michigan. Uh, uh, Senator Harris was in uh, in Florida, North Carolina. She's going to be in Georgia on Friday. So we see the coalescing around key states. So here is President Trump at a rally in Gastonia, North Carolina on Wednesday. I love this particular state, but I might not have come here so often. I've been all over your state. You better let me win. President Trump in North Carolina and in Pennsylvania, a campaign surrogate for Joe Biden showed up. His name, Barack Obama, his inaugural stump speech for Biden in Pennsylvania, and he took direct aim at President Trump. I get that this president wants full credit for the economy he inherited and zero blame for the pandemic that he ignored. But you know what? The job doesn't work that way. Tweeting at the television doesn't fix things. Making stuff up doesn't make people's lives better. Former President Barack Obama in Pennsylvania this week. Jack, what does it tell you about the, where the campaigns are focusing their efforts and, and who they're sending out to, to rally their voters? Well, I think uh, President Obama's appearance, people were saying it's an especially important for uh, to energize young people and uh, African-American voters, especially uh, to vote for the Biden ticket, because there does appear to be a continual a, a continuing uh, gap in enthusiasm. The, the Biden voters are just not as enthusiastic about voting for him as Trump voters are for their man. And that's not a good sign for the Democrats. Couple that with the signs in Pennsylvania, in Florida, and a couple of other states of massive uh, Republican uh, registration drives over the last month that have vastly outstripped what the Democrats have done. Uh, And you've got a situation where the Democratic base may need to be fired up. uh, And that's what what, that's what the president, uh, what President Obama was was trying to do. Oh, interesting. So, Lisa, your, your thoughts about that? Look, I, I think the easiest way to think about the final you know, two weeks of a race is always to look at who has more potential pathways to get to that magic number. And w- what we're seeing in this map is that Biden is competitive in Florida, in Arizona, in North Carolina, in Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, and Michigan. Um, you know, that gives him a little bit more uh, a little bit more wiggle room to see to be able to cobble together you know, a, a winning re-election, the, the winning re-election coalition. Um, I think it's hard to see how um, Trump wins without picking up one of those 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 three that were all the focus last time around, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, or Michigan. I think Florida is really important for the president. And the fact that um, Obama is being dispatched to Florida is sort of a very interesting development and should tell you um, – that the Biden campaign sees that state as a place where they could make inroads or at least make it really tough for the president um, in the final in the final week or so here. You don't send your most powerful surrogate to a place where you have no shot. So um, I, I think the map 
just offers more opportunities for Biden. And then, you know, you have these additional emerging states like a Texas, like a Georgia, which, you know, Democrats may not win this time around, but certainly Georgia is close is closer for them than in any other presidential campaign. So that's also a development that everybody's keeping a close eye on. And is the is the 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 thinking that in these places where perhaps the Biden campaign is closer than conventional wisdom might have us think that that forces uh, the Trump campaign to to spend more money and effort uh, in those locations than than they would want to. That's exactly right. President Trump was in Macon, Georgia, a, a week or so ago, and that's not a place where Republican presidential campaign candidates typically have to make a stop in the final weeks of the campaign. That's such a reliably red state. Now, of course, that doesn't mean um, that the state is going to flip Democratic uh, in in the election, but it does mean that there are more opportunities for Democrats there. And there's also two uh, Senate races happening, two Senate races happening in that state right now too. So some of this, of course, is about the presidential race, but there's also a pretty tight and competitive race happening for control of the Senate at the same time. Mm. You know, it's it, it's good that we we talk about the um, the measures that we can all see uh, fundraising ad spends, schedules. We can all see those things. But I also wonder if there are um, factors that we can't so readily see that actually are important that we need to think about. And and um, and Lisa, I'm asking because, you know, Jack had mentioned that maybe there's less maybe enthusiasm for Biden as a candidate amongst Democrats than there is uh, for Republicans and their enthusiasm or people who support the president, I should say, and their enthusiasm for President Trump. Is 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 that a factor that that we need to be mindful of? I think in a normal year, that would be a factor. But I think there is so much Democratic enthusiasm for voting out President Trump, that whether Democrats are particularly enthusiastic and thrilled with their candidate is sort of less important because their energy is coming not from necessarily who's at the top of their ticket, but from this deep, uh, fervent desire to get uh, President Trump out of office. So I, I think the enthusiasm is there. Um, and we're certainly seeing in the fundraising, you see these Democratic Senate candidates just posting these record-breaking, unbelievable fundraising numbers. Um, we see that Democratic turnout in every election during the Trump era, uh, the, two, the 2018 midterms, the 2019, the 2017, um, those off-year elections has just been surprisingly high. A lot of that uh, enthusiasm is coming from female voters. The gender gap, of course, is at a record high. Uh, and a lot of it is coming. Um, and what the Biden campaign hopes and what the polling does bear out is that at least a good portion portion of it is coming from female voters in these really crucial uh, swing state mm -hmm. suburbs. So that I think if this race is won uh, for Joe Biden, those women in those suburban communities will have a huge will play a huge part in that victory. Well, with that, we're going to have to wrap up our conversation uh, today about what this week tells us. I leave everyone with one last thought. And we also have an election where 48 million Americans have already voted. So we're calling November 3rd, not Election Day, but the end of voting in 2020. Lisa Lehrer, reporter at The New York Times, covering campaigns, elections and political power. She writes the On Politics with Lisa Lehrer newsletter. Always great to have you, Lisa. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. And Jack Beatty, On Point News Analyst with us, as always, from Hanover, New Hampshire. Jack, always great to have you as well. Thank you so very much. Thank you, Magda. And to all the canines who visited us today, thank you for joining us as well. 
This is On Point. We want to end the week by stepping away from the din and rancor and to a place of remembrance and peace. David Petit used to take regular morning walks around Fresh Pond Reservoir in Cambridge, Massachusetts. David had cancer, and the walks brought him hope and peace. He wrote on his neighborhood website, I am someone living with advanced cancer in the midst of active chemotherapy who has decided that I won't let this virus drive me into negativity. One way that I keep positive is to walk around Fresh Pond almost every day. Well, Dave died on September 13th. We first brought you his story on July 1st. And today in remembrance, we invite you to listen again. Got a northern mockingbird trying out his sequence of songs along with dealing with the coronavirus. Last September, I was diagnosed with inoperable metastatic bile cancer, which kind of puts me in the kind of in the high risk category of complications where I had to get exposed to this virus. Baltimore Oriole, female. There's the male. I had hair loss early on. And some of that hair is returning. The red winged blackbird. Trying to find some sense of hopefulness during these times has been Certainly important for me as I deal with the ravages of chemotherapy. Although at the moment it seems like it's having a positive impact. Oh, there's a great catbird. Um, every cycle I go through it gets harder and harder. And for me what that looks like is very intense fatigue. And an overall sense of kind of queasiness. And that can look to me at times like four out of five weeks. I'm feeling pretty lousy. So it's important that I find ways to kind of interrupt that because it can make me feel discouraged and anxious. And for me, getting out and for a walk, seeing the birds, being reminded that there are bigger things going on than what I can see just before me, it disrupts that, that process a bit. And I always feel better. Yellow warbler. Yellow warblers have this distinctive call... It sounds to me like, sweet, sweet, you're so sweet. A uh, pair of Orioles calling. And now, given the nature of the diagnosis I'm dealing with and this pandemic, I feel even more grateful that I was able to get out to see some of this stuff. Of course, these frogs singing. I was someone who lived north of Boston as a kid, and there was this little small track of woods across the street from our house, and I loved to go out and just look at whatever was out there. And this passion was nurtured by my grandmother, who, when I was 10 or 11, gave me a, a Peterson's Field Guide of the birds, Carolina Wren. A little tiny bird that can belt out a song you can hear a long way away. See a couple of other people here out bird watching. 
the owl in the box today. Oh, have you seen it there? I, up until three days ago, it was there every single day the for about owl? two weeks. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. What do you have over here? Pine warbler. Yeah, I heard it calling. Yeah, he's right up in yeah. the pine tree there. Right, well, have a nice day, everyone. <laughs> so far, every person I've seen this morning is wearing a mask, which makes me feel good and feel like my risk is lower here. Can relax a tiny bit. Robin. There's something about being out here early on a Monday morning where it's quiet and having watched the birds change as the season has unfolded kind of gives me a sort of a daily sense of hope. Reminds me that humans have dealt with epidemics and pandemics before and We'll figure this out somehow, some way. Up oh, there goes a Baltimore Oriole flying by. Beautiful orange and black bird. David Petit. He was a Unitarian Universalist minister from Cambridge, Massachusetts. He died on September 13th. And Dave's daughter Sophie wrote that it's a gift that she can listen to the recordings of her father's outings as she walks the same route around Fresh Pond in Cambridge, Massachusetts. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. This is On Point. <laughs>